All right, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jude. We've been at this overview series for a long time now. We have tonight's study in Jude, and we have the apocalypse of John in, uh, in, in the week or weeks to come, and that will bring to a conclusion our overview series. These are cataloged on our website. From time to time, someone will ask me about a specific book of the Bible. I hope that you will make use of those. That was kind of the focus. The goal was to be able to bank or library on our website a basic overview of the entire Bible so that as students of the Scripture, should you desire review at some point in the future, those are accessible to you. Several people have asked about a transcript or a written um, copy of this overview of the Bible. We may look to that at some point in the future to make that available to you as you study the Scripture, but that has been the focus. The next series that we will go through on Wednesday night will be a covering, a summary of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our doctrinal statement. So you should have in the days to come, Lord willing, an overview of the entire narrative of the scripture, as well as an overview or summary of the doctrinal commitments of our fellowship. I trust that those will serve you well in the years to come. And I hope that I get old and gray and balder as a pastor, and those are still being utilized by our faith family and uh, helping and encouraging in the study of the scripture. Tonight we have this little small book of the New Testament, just 25 verses in the book of, of Jude, but it is densely packed with sound, solid, substantive doctrinal teaching. A letter Jude writes that he did not initially intend to write. In fact, he says, my initial focus was to write to you about our shared salvation. He seems to have been driven to sit down and to write a celebration of the gospel to those Christians addressed by this brief letter. But given the circumstances under which the church existed during that time, he felt compelled to write to them concerning the defense of the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. Now think about this for just a moment. This thought is important to Jude's point and to our application of the principles of the book of Jude. Jude is probably written somewhere around 65 or 66 AD. We take that date from its parallels to 2 Peter. 95% of the content of 2 Peter is covered in Jude and vice versa. There's a lot of similarity between those two letters. So much similarity that it seems likely that these two books are written around the same time. And so with 2 Peter having been written at the end of Peter's life, Peter having died a death by martyrdom in 64-65 under the emperor Nero of Rome, it seems likely that this is a fairly precise dating for the book of Jude as well. So put that into perspective. Jesus, by my dating, died at Calvary in 29-31 to 31 A.D. And so within the span of roughly 30 years, the Apostle Jude, the brother of Jesus, is now compelled to write of the prevalence of, of apostasy in the church. To write regarding the great number 
and the strong influence of false teachers in the church. In fact, one of the points that Jude makes in the letter that is Jude is that false teachers and devilish satanic influences have always been a part of the experience of the people of God. Now, I raise that as a way of reminding and encouraging you, this is a major point for Jude as well, that if false teaching has always been a devilish part of the experience of the people of God, we've strong reason to believe that it's a devilish part and a negative influence at the present hour with regards to the people of God. So Jude served in the first century as a warning against false teaching. It seldom comes in ways that's easily recognized. They come as, as wolves in sheep's clothing. That's the way Jesus describes them. Now, a wolf is fairly recognizable. But when a wolf clothes himself in sheep's clothing, he begins to have a way of camouflaging himself among the sheep. If this were the kind of thing that were easy, few people would be deceived. What we're called upon by Jude and other letters in the New Testament to exercise is great discernment by the Spirit of God. Be cautious, Jude says. And there are other exhortations, countless exhortations in the New Testament that warn us that we had better be careful of this kind of thing. And often it looks good on the outside. There's a certain appeal. There's a certain flair. It can gain popularity fairly quickly. But we had better be on guard against those doctrines that would pull us away from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, Jude does not call the church to defense. In other words, the message here is not go on the defense, lock yourself down and insulate yourselves against the things of the world. The call is not defend the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The call is that we would contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are never on our heels, always in an offensive posture, ever seeking the advancement of his kingdom. The, the kingdom is not in danger. You do understand that, don't you? Even where false teaching prospers, the kingdom is never in danger. There may be local assemblies that drift and therefore are in danger. There may be nations, there may be kings who themselves drift and therefore are in danger. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ will eternally stand. We're not having a discussion here tonight about how we're going to protect ourselves against the, the evil influences of the world. Our interest, primarily our interest, is how we're going to be salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation exerting the kingdom influence that God has bestowed on us by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the focus of the book of Jude. I want us to read together all of Jude first, given its brevity, and then we'll come back and we'll draw some commentary along the way. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, 
turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord first saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who didn't believe. And he has kept with eternal chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. In the same way Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions just as angels did and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Yet Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them, for they've traveled in the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the heir of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feast. They feast with you, nurturing only themselves without fear. They're waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots, wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. And Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about them, Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict them of all their ungodly acts that they've done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, walking according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what, you, what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there'll be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are unbelievers not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Jude begins by calling the church to contend for the faith. Verses 1 through 4 focus on this idea, contend for the faith. There's this brief introduction in verses 1 and 2. There is a, a, a bit I want to point out for you here. If you'll look at verse 1, Jude says, A slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. If you're a note taker or an underliner, it would behoove you to underline or to make a mark there by the term kept. Jude is going to begin, or, or rather end, on the same note with which he begins. What Jude signals is that the answer to our not falling victim to false teaching is the keeping power of Jesus Christ. 
How many of you know that not only does God save us, but that he is actively keeping us as true believers over the duration of our life? That seems to be a major point of emphasis for Jude in these 25 verses. God save us, but also keep us, God. Hold us fast and don't let us go. In verse 3, the Bible says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. The idea here is that you're going to be fighting for the faith. Now, the language of fighting the good fight and, in fact, military fighting terminology is used throughout the Bible. Sometimes, I think, because we're wrong-headed in our approach to the Scripture, we regard this as a literal fisticuffs fighting for the faith. But that's not what's intended. There is, it seems, an intentional effort at casting our defense of the faith, our contending for the faith in these militaristic or fighting terms. It sort of beefs up or makes masculine the passive posture that Christ has called us to in the gospel a willful sacrifice to see the kingdom advanced, a willingness to lay down our lives for the advancement of the kingdom. That is in itself a fight, but not the fight that we often envision when we hear such language. Jude says, contend once and for all. Now, given the kindness, the gentleness, and the humility to which Jesus called us to in his preaching and teaching ministry, it seems that there are certain episodes reflected in the New Testament where there were such pains taken to demonstrate gentleness and hospitality and kindness that that could really be abused, taken advantage of, and it could often come to demonstrate a real weakness in the life of the church. The example that I have in mind first and foremost is 1 Corinthians 5. And the church has a brother in the church who's involved in, in a grave act of sexual immorality. And rather than being ashamed of this sin's presence in the life of their local body, they regard this as an example of their great grace. And, and they're celebrating this thing, right? They should have brought him under discipline. They should have rebuked him and sought correction and reconciliation in his life. But they see this as sort of, hey, we're, we're more gracious than anyone else because we got this brother in our church and you wouldn't believe the crazy things that he's doing and yet we have embraced him. Sort of a 21st century American evangelicalism idea before the 21st century American evangelicalism idea was ever born, right? Like we're better Christians because we're far more tolerant of grave sin than someone else. Now it seems to be at least somewhat reflected in the passage that there was a reticence on the part of the church to deal with the presence of false teaching in their midst. There's a great deal of difference. I was having this conversation just this afternoon. There's a great deal of difference between bearing with weaker brothers, demonstrating compassion for those in sin, being patient with those who may be immature in their understanding of the gospel. That's, a, that's one thing. It is another thing altogether to address or to deal with those who have entrenched themselves within a local body for the expressed purpose of sowing discord, disunity, and false doctrine within that body. There is, as I like to say, a time when the shepherd is responsible to bind the wounds of the sheep. 
And then there are times when the shepherd is responsible to wield the shepherd's staff in protection of the sheep. Now, what Jude is describing here is not a situation where there are immature yet fully yet to come to full understanding of the gospel believers within the body. What he's describing are those who have not truly believed the gospel for their salvation and who sow the seeds of discord, disunity, and false doctrine within the body. In other words, Jude says it's time that local shepherds would wield the shepherd's staff in a way that's intended to protect the interest of the local assembly. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. In verse 4 he says, Some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now there are a few things that are said about these apostates that Jude is describing in our passage. One, they, they've done the very thing that we discussed a bit on Sunday morning in our treatment of Romans 6. They have said, where sin abounds, grace abounds. And so we should sin all the more that God would lavish us with his grace. They have perverted the teaching of the gospel to suggest that their sinfulness is not a mark of immaturity, but true maturity in the gospel. In doing so, they've invited others within the body to join them in their promiscuity, which suggests that there's a measure of sexual immorality as a part of their abuse of the grace afforded us in the gospel. But the biggest factor Jude describes here is the last line or two of verse number four denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. The reason people teach a false faith is because they themselves do not possess a true faith back there. Heavens, heaven knows there are lots of those that exist out there. I'm, I'm talking about the teaching ministry that is in direct conflict with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. For anyone that ever goes through starting point here, we work through this little way of measuring ministries to see if we can find a, a, a level of substance in them that can be good for them. I always say, you know, we, we, we're drinking from lots of cisterns today. 20 years ago, the teaching ministry you had primary exposure to was your local pastor. Whoever your pastor was, that was the message that you heard with regularity. You, you might catch Adrian on Sunday morning. There might be a local pastor that maybe uh, everyone appreciated that, that, that uh, wasn't a part of your church that you would tune into on, on the local networks. But by and large, your main source of nourishment of soul when it came to preaching was in your local church, your, your pastor. But now for virtually everyone, there's access to any number of preachers and teachers. I listen to other pastors, preachers, and teachers on a daily basis. And in a few cases, they're not a part of our denominational structure or life. They're not Southern Baptist guys. I'm encouraged and well-nourished from them. They're just not SBC guys. And that's probably the case for you all as well. So you need to have the ability to, to evaluate those ministries to determine whether there's substance there that's good for the soul or not. And there are a few doctrinal commitments that I'll always walk them through in that starting point class. They're good for us here tonight. One, there has to be a belief in the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in three distinct persons 
one in essence. Now, I'm not saying to you you have to understand the Trinity because, frankly, I'm not sure that anyone really does. But I am saying to you that this is a critical foundational doctrine. My favorite Trinity quote always cited in this setting is from Adrian Rogers who said, try to understand the Trinity and you'll lose your mind, but deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. It is that critical. It is just that critical. And you might be surprised to know how this simple foundational doctrine can go so far towards separating the wheat from the tares when it comes to false teaching. A second issue is the nature and divinity of Jesus. What I mean by that is that Jesus is 100% man, not just in the appearance of man, but like unto us. Jesus is man. In fact, he is eternally man. He doesn't change his substance, his appearance, or his nature. When he appears in his resurrected body, he does so with scars in his hands and in his side. Eternally, he sits at the right hand of the Father as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. While at the same time, he is 100% divine. Now, that's really straightforward. That's a foundational Christian doctrine. But again, you would be surprised to note how effective these two measures can be in separating the true from the false, especially when it comes to the prosperity gospel and so many of these preachers who are so popular in our culture today through TBN and CBN and so-called Christian broadcasting. You'll be hard-pressed to find anyone in those circles who believes the biblical doctrine of the Trinity or the biblical doctrine of the nature and divinity of Jesus. I could rattle you off a list of names who are in error with regards to this particular issue. A third doctrine that is important for use in evaluating preaching ministries is the nature of man. Not just the nature of Christ, but the nature of man. And, and I, one of the things that makes our world so wacky, one of the reasons as a society we have such a, a, a broken understanding of the world is because we don't get the doctrine of sin. We just do not get the doctrine of sin. We are not as people fundamentally good looking for opportunities to give expression to our inner goodness or light. We are fundamentally bad. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there are 8 billion illustrations of this alive on the planet today. I don't, care, I don't care who mom and dad is. You take any child and lock them in a room. Lock them in until they're 18 years old. They'll come out cussing, fighting, lying, and stealing. A testament to the fact that from conception... We are sinners, sinners by birth and sinners by choice. You miss this doctrine and the rest of the house falls. A fourth is the inerrancy of the scripture. If a preacher doesn't believe in the inerrancy of the scripture, there's, there's little if any opportunity to glean any substance whatsoever from his ministry. The language of inerrancy is specifically chosen by our church as a non-negotiable doctrine because it allows for no wiggle room under its great weight. What you'll find is that virtually all preaching ministries will suggest that they believe in the authority of the Scripture, 
They'll believe that the Bible is God's word, or they'll frame that in a way as to say that the Bible contains God's word. No, the Bible is God's word. And yes, the Bible is authoritative. And yes, the Bible is infallible. And yes, the Bible is sufficient for all matters with regards to faith and practice. But, but we have chosen to emphasize our insistence that the Bible is God's word with the language of inerrancy because it is the weightiest and most forceful terminology that can be used in order to express our deep and abiding belief that God's word is unlike any other book inspired by God that bears power and never returns void. If, you're, if you'll look for those doctrinal commitments in a preaching ministry, I don't really care what their denominational background or traditional affiliation is. You'll find that there can be substance for your soul, nourishment for your soul. There can be encouragement for you in that preaching ministry. Now, you need to be more specific when it comes to finding local church fellowship. And there needs to be agreement on more than just the foundational issues. But you and I can find encouragement when there's shared conviction with regards to these issues. So what Judah's describing is not someone who just doesn't get it yet. He's not describing someone who's a different view on, on one of many issues that we might regard as secondary or tertiary. He's talking about people who have rejected the message of the gospel, if not by the words of their mouth and by virtue of the actions that they've taken. Now, in verses 5 and following, in fact, in verses 5 through 7, Jude gives three examples of apostasy in the past in order to warn the church against apostasy in the present. Look to verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord first saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who didn't believe. Now, y'all tracking with the focus of this example? He brought all of Israel out. All of ethnic Israel came out of their Egyptian bondage. But there was a generation that never saw the promised land. What he's calling them to is the realization that not all of Israel is Israel, which would lead to the realization that not all who find their names on the membership roles of a church are truly a part of the church. Not all of Israel is Israel is a proverb that's true of our experience today as well. I wish it weren't the case. But it proves true again and again and again, especially in the Bible Belt South, that the most fertile mission fields can be identified by taking a gander at those names on the membership rolls of local churches. He's warning them that just because you identify with the people who have in general experienced the power and the presence of God does not mean that every individual within that assembly has truly been touched by the power of God. All of Israel came out, but an entire generation was cut down by God in their 40 years of wilderness wandering for what? For their unbelief. And there will be those who identify themselves with local church assemblies just like ours, who on the last day will fail to see the land that flows with milk and honey. Not, not, not for some secondary issue but because of the presence of 
unbelief in their heart because of a lack of commitment to the message of the gospel. Here's the second example. Verse 6. And he has kept with eternal chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. So he's using here the angels. Now, I'm fascinated by the book of Jude. We talked about this a little bit in the Point Academy seminar on resurrection, the influence of the book of Enoch in the New Testament, and that's exactly what is in view here. Not only does Jude directly cite the book of Enoch in verses 14 and 15, he alludes to the book of Enoch a few times over throughout these 25 verses. Now, if you were not a part of Point Academy, it's worth noting here that does not make Enoch a biblical book. And so sometimes I think we're sort of operating with a sort of myopic view of the Bible and literature in the first century and even beyond the first century that the only things that were being written were the books we have in the Bible. That's just not true. The 66 books we have in the Bible are those books codified by the church, canonized by the church, by their universal acceptance within the church. When a New Testament writer makes reference to Enoch, and there are dozens of references to the book of Enoch in the New Testament, I could have a fun time with you walking you through a number of those examples. He is not appealing to the book of Enoch as authoritative scripture for the church. He is appealing to the book of Enoch as commonly understood literature in its day in order to demonstrate a certain principle or to illustrate a certain biblical point. The, the, the parallel that I would draw in 21st century experience would be something like the Chronicles of Narnia. None of us believe the Chronicles of Narnia are biblical. You will not do your devotion tonight in the Chronicles of Narnia. But it is such a commonly understood, we're so aware of the Chronicles of Narnia within the Christian subculture because of its Christian teachings and the examples that C.S. Lewis sought to provide of Jesus and discipleship and kingdom growth in the Chronicles of Narnia, a preacher could appeal to that work of literature in order to make a certain point about a Christian doctrine or the character of Jesus. It became popular for a season in social media to use the language of Aslan is on the move as a sort of thinly veiled way of saying the kingdom is advancing and people are coming to faith in Jesus. But none of us would preach. I wouldn't. Somebody would, but they would be wrong. Would preach from the Chronicles of Narnia because it is not the Bible. It is not the Word of God. It's Christian literature that gives expression to Christian values. I wouldn't even necessarily say that Enoch necessarily gives expression to Christian values, but it is a spiritual, religious work of literature that was commonly known and well understood in its time. One of the key contributions that the book of Enoch makes to the culture in its day is how Jews were to understand what unfolds in Genesis chapter 6. If you've been a part of our First Peter series, you've heard a bit of this already. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that the sons of God came and lay with the daughters of men. Now, frankly, I'm not entirely sure what that means. But the language, sons of God, created enough mystery about Genesis chapter 6 that the, the, the Enoch, as a work of literature, is a spinoff in some ways of Genesis 6 and seeking to fill the void that the mystery of Genesis 6 creates. Of men represented 
fallen angels. And as a result of those angels in their fallen state, lying with the daughters of men, God cast them into prison, into everlasting darkness, as an act of judgment against them, and to prevent them from ever doing this awful misdeed again. Now that's what Jude is describing here. Now again, that does not affirm that this necessarily happened in history. He's drawing on an illustration from commonly understood literature to demonstrate that even angels, even angels who live in direct proximity to the holy God, when they get out of line, judgment has been determined for them. They were among a holy band. It was an angel, it was the angelic choir that gathered around the throne of God to sing holy, holy, holies before the foundation of the world. And yet from within that angelic choir, like Israel in the prior example, there were those who either as it's expressed in the book of Enoch or in other ways grabbed for the glory that belongs to God and God alone, and in doing so, they secured for themselves a casting down from heaven and their eternal imprisonment in, imprisonment in the darkness of hell's judgment forever and ever. So their example serves as yet another warning against apostasy and the dark fate for those who give themselves over to a misrepresentation of the gospel. Look now at verse 7. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions just as angels did. That's a reference, by the way, to Enoch again. And serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah functions as an example of the seriousness with, with which God deals with sexual immorality. That seems to be the sin of the false teachers that Jude has in view, the sin of sexual immorality. And I would note there is no shortage of false teaching that is geared directly toward the encouragement of sexual perversion in our day. It is an unfortunate reality that if I were to be in counsel with an individual wrestling with understanding a biblical view of homosexuality, I can no longer point them to Google searches that would help them to identify Christian literature to navigate that issue because they will be assured a series of hundreds, if not thousands, of articles, books, and sermons from so-called Christian teachers who will encourage them that their sexual perversion can be appropriate for a follower of Jesus. We're, we're reaching a place where it's easier to find exhortation in sexual immorality than it is to find exhortation against sexual immorality. But if anything is made clear by the Sodom and Gomorrah example, it is that God ain't fooling around when it comes to sexual perversion, especially the sexual perversion so common and so frequently celebrated in our culture. This is the form that apostasy took in the first century. And this is always the inclination of apostasy in every generation. Some manner of breaking with our being created in the image of God. Some manner of distorting the image of God in us. Some manner of giving oneself over to the lustful, perverted desires of the flesh. Sins which God takes incredibly seriously. 
So Jude gives three Old Testament examples of what a grave issue this really is for us. Look to verse 8. Nevertheless, these dreamers, speaking of apostates in the first century, I struggle with that word. Have y'all picked that up tonight? I just can't say it. False teachers in the present, nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Glorious ones seems to be a way of referring to angels. Yet Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. This is a weird scenario, and I, I find it weird because it, it has become commonplace in certain circles. I, I, I was preaching a revival in Alabama. We'll blame this all on Alabama. And there was a, a church down the road that was also having a revival. And as a part of that, they opened the door of the church and kicked out the devil. Now, superficially, that seems kind of silly. But on a deeper level, there's a certain danger about that. It seems to be the kind of thing that Jude is addressing here. And he cites again, you guessed it, Enoch, and says, when Michael was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, this is one of the things covered in the book of Enoch. There's a lot of things covered in the book of Enoch, by the way. You remember a few years ago when they made the motion picture Noah about the flood and how Christians went berserk because it didn't look anything like the flood account in the book of Genesis? That's because they weren't using the flood account from the book of Genesis. They were using the flood account from the book of Enoch. There's a number of things covered in the book of Enoch. But in the book of Enoch, there is this dispute between Michael the archangel and uh, the devil over the body of Moses, that the body of Moses would be kept, would be preserved by the people of God. And in that example, again appealing to the example or the illustration of the book of Enoch, Michael does not himself rebuke the devil, but instead, instead calls on the sites the name of the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. If, if you think somehow you've got Satan hemmed up, you are operating according to a scheme of understanding that is just unfathomable. Not even the archangel would bring an accusation against Satan, but rather would rebuke him in the name of the Lord. So what charismatic types would do with this is they would just say, well, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. To which I would say, that was an archangel that rebuked the devil in the name of the Lord. Flee from the devil. That's what you should do. You should run away. My counsel to that little church was if the devil was there, they should have ran away, found somewhere else to go and hold their service on a given day. The Lord rebuke you. These people, Jude says, blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know, what they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain have abandoned themselves to the heir of Balaam for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. He uses three ex examples again from the Old Testament of apostasy and rebellion and how in each instance God brings it to disaster. In the case of Cain, Cain brings an unacceptable sacrifice before the Lord. God rejects his sacrifice and in jealousy Cain kills his brother Abel. 
reminding Jude's congregation that false teachers are not out for your good, but for your destruction. They do not have your interest in view. Then he uses the example of Balaam. This is a reference to Numbers 22 through 24 and an attending tradition concerning Balaam's prophecy that follows after. What most people know about Balaam is that he was the prophet of Israel who was riding the donkey when the donkey spoke. The donkey had better sense about the situation than what the prophet of God had in the moment. There's a series of events where Balak, the king of the Moabites, calls on Balaam. What he wants from Balaam is that he would make a prophecy of judgment against the people of Israel. He's witnessed from afar the way the Israelites have devoured the Amorites, and he doesn't want the same fate for the Moabite people. So he offers to pay Balaam a handsome sum of money to prophesy judgment against the people of Israel. Initially, Balaam seems to get it right. He says, I can only prophesy what God tells me. I can only say, thus saith the Lord. But Balaam seems to be entertaining this possibility that he could receive somehow this handsome, handsome sum. And he goes back again and again and again. There are four prophecies or oracles that Balaam ultimately gives. There is an attending tradition concerning the Balaam and Balak back and forth that says that Balaam eventually gets to this place where he acknowledges, I can only say thus saith the Lord, but here's the trick, Balaam. You'll weaken their faith. You'll make them susceptible to the judgment of God. In other words, I can't just lead them astray by prophetic utterance, but you can entice them with sexual sin and make them susceptible to the judgment of God. In so many ways, Balaam's prophecy becomes paradigmatic for false teaching in every generation it follows after. In other words, this is what false teaching does. You might not be vulnerable to being spoon-fed false teaching, but if you can be enticed and tempted such that you give yourself to sin, you make yourself vulnerable to false teaching. This, this is a universal principle, right? Like people think, people think college students fail or fall because they go away to college and they're intellectually challenged by a professor. And that's almost never the way it happens. Seldom do I get up the courage to ask it, but what I want to ask every college student that comes and says, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm really wrestling with whether God exists or I'm trying to figure out how evolutionary science fits or philosophically I have problems with the problem of evil. What I always want to ask them is who they're sleeping with. Because it's, almost, it's not that they hit, have philosophical, theological, or scientific issues with the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's that they're fishing for a new faith system that accords with their new moral system. It's always been this way, and that's the very thing that Balaam and his prophecy represents within the history of the nation of Israel. Then Korah's rebellion is the second was, Korah was a Levitical priest who got himself together 25 or 250 other Levitical priests, and they didn't like the leadership of Moses or of Aaron. So they rebel against their leadership, and Moses essentially says, let's, get all, let's all get together. We're going to put you and your 250 out there, and we're going to put Aaron out there, and we're going to ask God to sort this thing out. 
So eventually they get all gathered up and Moses says, here's what we're going to do, Israel. Here's how you're going to know who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. If these 250 die by natural causes, you'll know that I'm not the prophet of God, not the leader that God has for you. But if something supernatural happens to sweep them away, it will serve to verify their rebellious spirit and God's favor on Moses and Aaron. And the ground opens up and swallows those 250 with their families, therefore verifying the authority of mine for the foreseeable future. Now when the ground opens up to swallow you under, it's a pretty clear indication that God is displeased with the nature of your ministry. This is the nature of apostasy in Jude's day, and it is the nature of apostasy in our day. We're out of time, but I, 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 have, I can't leave you without turning to the closing prayer. Uh, in fact, the closing exhortation and the closing prayer in verses 20 through 25. Verse 20 says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. You remember how Jude began the letter? To those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Here he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now look to verse 24 in the prayer. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I want you to know as true believers that as you are laboring to keep yourself in the love of God, that God is able to keep you. That God holds us fast. And he's given us the spirit of truth that abides within us to discern the true from the false, the real from the fake, the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the tares. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Listen for the discernment offered by the still small voice of God. Know his word well. Hold fast and guard against the kind of sinful, willful disobedience that would make you vulnerable to the deceptions of false teaching. May the Lord keep you against that day. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of spending these moments together with your people. God, we ask as Jude exhorts us, Lord, and even prays for the body that you would save and keep to the uttermost. Protect us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.